But I want you to go with me to uh, Jonah chapter 3. We're in our fourth part of the series called Run to Grace. The nature of mankind is exactly the opposite. Uh, We tend to run the wrong way all the time. We tend to do the wrong things. Uh, We make choices that are centered around our values rather than God's. And in Jonah chapter 3, there's a great story of a whole nation of people um, that need God's help. And God sent Jonah to help them. We've been studying that process. He sent him to, he sent Jonah as a servant to warn them. And, uh, Jonah, as you know from chapter one, Jonah did not want to do that. He didn't want to be a servant of God. He didn't want to go tell Nineveh. Today, that'll be, make a little more sense to you. Um, why he didn't, um, kind of avoided some of that, but I want to get into it today. And then, uh, Jonah avoided sharing these warnings with these lost people. And so, <laughs> When he got in trouble in the boat and we talked about how God reveals our sins and, and there's pretty strong consequences of that at times, uh, God was not going to let Jonah get away with it and say no. So after he got thrown overboard from a ship that was about to sink, um, God swallowed him up with a great fish and uh, Jonah had to repent. And all of chapter 2 we studied last week is the story of his repentance. And so I'm just going to encourage you to... to uh, Think through these verses as I read Jonah chapter 3 to you. They'll be on the screen. I try very hard not to sing songs so my voice doesn't go out and I'm sitting back there singing every song today just as hard as I could sing and realize about halfway through that that's not going to be good for my voice. So, But Jonah chapter 3 says, it's a repeat of Jonah 1 verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, except it adds this line, the second time. We talked about how God gives us second chances. Um, here's Jonah's second chance at this. Second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So, now Jonah 1 verse 3 says, So Jonah rose up to flee from the Lord, presence of the Lord to Tarshish. And that's not what he does here. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, Three days walk. In other words, it takes three days to walk through it. Um, you could walk through this, the actual city proper of Mobile probably in a half a day or less. I mean, just to go from one end of Mobile to the other won't take long at all. If you went as broad as Mobile County, you could cover it in a day. So you can multiply us times maybe four and five and get the size of this um, city. Now, here's what I want you to do. On the top of your little handout, and everybody's got one, I'd love for you to write the name just think for a minute about the name of somebody you know that's close to you, friend, coworker, family member, um, but somebody that's close to you that's far from God. You know they're, they're either running from God, they're avoiding God, or they're struggling, uh, or maybe they've just never ever wanted to be any part of anything uh, with Christianity or faith in God, and so they, so they constantly just staying away from God. And I want you to put their name at the top of your list. This is your, your handout, so um, nobody will see that, but you, you just hang on to it and look at it and... Uh, We'll talk about that as we go through the rest of this chapter. So here's God sending Jonah to this town called Nineveh, three days walk. And it says, Jonah began to go through the town, verse 4, through the city, one day's walk. And he cried saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now this is an important word. This word overthrown is a very important word. We would associate it with the concept of um, a nuclear holocaust. That would probably be the closest thing you could imagine. This is the word God uses in the Old Testament when He's going to judge a nation and nothing's ever going to be there again, ever. 
Nothing's going to grow there. Nobody's going to want to visit there. It's just desolation. Sodom and Gomorrah was overthrown by God. And uh, I mean, he just wiped them off the map. And so that's the same word that Jonah's using as he travels three days journey across the city. He's walking every day, telling everybody in 40 days, the God of Israel, Yahweh, is going to overthrow this city. And and when he uses that word, it would sound it would set off an alarm to you if somebody was walking through your city saying, "In forty days, a nuclear bomb is going to go off right here," and you'd you'd be you'd be packing for sure. You know, you'd make sure you got as far away from here as you could, and you'd be nervous about it if you had any if this person had any credibility. Jonah's credibility, by the way, is just that he's sent from God and he's been inside the belly of a great fish. And most people believe, by the way, he was bleached from that time he spent inside the great fish. He's bleached out, and so he just looks real freaky to everybody. He's kind of like a a really, I always picture him as this real 70s druggy guy with long hair and locks that are all matted together from that moment. And uh, and then he's bleached kind of white out, and his face is pale, and he just looks sickly, but he's real intense. I could picture his his eyes being real intense because he's had an encounter with God. He's had a real encounter with God, and he's come to real repentance and now his job is to go into this place that threatens his life. Nineveh is a place that normally kills prophets. And so here he goes to prophesy, and his words are, God's going to completely destroy your city. Verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh, look at this, believed in God. They called a fast. They put on slack cough from the greatest to the least of them. When the words reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation and said in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and, the, and his nobles, let not man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let the men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hand. If you mark things in your Bible, you might underline this phrase, that each may turn from their wicked ways. Um, because turning is that, we talked about it last time, it's that sign of repentance. Um, that each may turn from their wicked ways. Um, who knows, verse 9, who knows God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. And verse 10, there's a place where if you mark in your Bible, as I suggest all the time, If you write the word grace down anywhere in your Bible, every time you see it, this is a perfect place to write it. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked ways, God relented. It's really a nice way to say he had grace concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Grace is undeserved favor. And God shows Nineveh, a horribly wicked city, undeserved favor. In chapter 4, he's even going to go on to explain to Jonah, they don't even know right. They're so messed up. They don't know their right from their left. They're, they're right from wrong. They don't know good from evil. They've got it all mixed up. So he still could judge them in that, but he chooses in chapter 3 at the end to have grace. And so just some principles today about values and the important things. Our vision this year is what's the most important thing to God in the world. If you had to say, God, what is the most important thing in the world? To you, he would say, lost people finding me. You want good proof of that? Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. God is so concerned about these very wicked people that he's sending a servant 
to literally tell them that. And lost people, the people of Nineveh, matter to God. So they have to begin to matter to us. We have to care about those people. Now Jonah was recommissioned to go to Nineveh. He, he chose, he was commissioned one time to go to Nineveh and he failed. He just said no. And so God had a little conversation with him, put him in a storm, never let him get to the resort island of Tarshish he was trying to get to, rerouted him by way of great fish and got him all the way on the land and vomited him out on the land. That was kind of fun. Threw him up on the land where he needed to be. And now Jonah was recommissioned because here's what God's saying. If you just kind of pull all the uh, curtains back, God goes, seriously, somebody's going to Nineveh to warn them. That's what he's saying. And Jonah, I meant for you to go, so you're going. You're going to Nineveh. Go. And he put him in a fish, got him there, because God literally has a heart to warn these people and these lost people of their fate. He's warning them of their fate. Now, the warning was in a time frame, 40 days. God gave them a 40-day warning, and he calls them to, to deal with that. You have 40 days, a 40-day warning that, that comes. Now, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions because I want you to think in terms of lost people. If you knew the person on the top of your page that you wrote down, that you love and apparently God brought them to your mind for you to write them on their on your piece of paper and you know they're far from God. If you knew they only had 40 days left of life, you knew that in 40 days their life would end, I'm asking you, would it up the energy level with which you're trying to communicate God's grace and God's love? Because 40 days is not very long. It happens really, really fast. 40 days goes by really fast. And so in 40 days, Jonah says, you're going to be destroyed. God's going to judge your sins. And now it's time to change. And I want you to notice that Nineveh changed immediately. They immediately took that seriously. It says they believed God and they changed. Um, now, how many, how many of you know how many days from now till you or your friend that you wrote down will stand before God? How many of you know how many days that'll be? Yeah, don't raise your hand unless you're some way an idiot. Because nobody in this room knows. It could be this very day before we finish this service, we could all be standing before God and, and literally standing before Him in our judgment today. It could be 20 days from now. It could be 40 days from now. It could be 400 days from now. It could be 40 years from now. And many of us wouldn't be here 40 years from now because we'd already be standing with Him, right? So at some point... Everybody in this room is going to stand before God, stand before God and have to deal with a holy God and your lifestyle. At some point, everybody in this room is going to stand before a holy God. Everybody. The person on your list, they're going to stand before God. And I'm just asking you to think through how important it is to God that lost people hear the message of the gospel of grace. Because Nineveh was a horribly wicked, wicked place. And God is sending a warning to them to help them. So the person whose name's on the top of your page, I believe God's calling you today to be some level of warning to them, to be some level of understanding that God has a, 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 a holy side and a judgment side that will take place if you're not surrendered to Calvary and to the cross of Christ. There, I, I preached a sermon several months ago. 
This is a sermon that I preached, and it's just two. <laughs> there's two ends to life for everybody: God's wrath and God's grace. There's two ends, two ends. And Nineveh gets to face one or the other: God's wrath or God's grace. Your friend on the list: God's wrath or God's grace. And you don't want to be on the God's wrath side. We talked about that in that study. It is not a pretty place to be because um, God is holy and He cannot stand unrighteousness. And our righteousness has to be only through Christ. That's the only thing that makes us pure and clean before Him. So just reminding you today that we have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to warn that person. Please don't keep making excuses. Please hear the heart of a pastor, okay? Please don't keep making excuses why you can't have some level of conversation with a person that's far from God. Don't keep making excuses. We have to reach out to these people and tell them, I don't know how much time we have. I just don't know how much time we have. Um, I know that a lot of things are unfolding in the Middle East that would say, if you if you track the, Old, the New Testament, uh, the book of Revelation, and tie it to Daniel and Ezekiel, there'd be a lot of things unfolding that would say, it sure is coming together like God said it is. These pieces are all falling in place. And any day now... You know, some people, some nations could attack Israel and bring about what literally is the end. I don't know if you know this, but one of the goals of ISIS, this uh, terrorist group, one of their goals, when you keep watching them behead people and all this stuff, they get these little news footages going where you, where you see all this traumatic stuff they're doing, but they're this little tiny, tiny group of warriors. I mean, they say, we make them sound big, but they're not that big. Any good army could just go wipe them out if we just took it seriously, Right? So why do they keep doing that? Why do they keep, you know, threatening the big dogs? They're not trying to win any international war. They're not trying to take over the world. Everybody goes, well, they're just trying to take over the world. No, they're not. They literally believe in their heart. When you study their theology and you study what they believe, they literally believe in their heart. They can bring about the end of the world if they will just attack the right people. And we are, by the way, the infidel and the right people. And if they attack us... Their gods will literally end this world, and everybody gets to go. Now, interestingly enough, there's a little bit of theology in our Bible that says that at the end of all times, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, and lots of them. Nation's going to rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. That's what we're seeing, okay? So I'm saying all that to say, I don't know how many days we have left. It may not be many days, but we have to be prepared for that. And we have to care about what's most important. And what is most important to God is lost people finding Him. In all the craziness that may happen in our world, let's not lose track of lost people finding God. How do I know that? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He cares more about this world than you and I can ever understand. He sent His only Son to die on the cross. Now, I heard Brandon teach this. Same thing. He, he said the same thing I've said a dozen times in my ministry days. Um, I've heard dozens and dozens of pastors say it. I heard the pastor at camp this last week. I went up to camp for a couple of days to the little kids' camp and be with some friends. And, and, uh, and I heard the pastor Paul say this. Every pastor I know says this. There's no way... I could give you one of my children to pay for your sins. I just couldn't do it. Okay? I don't have, I love you, but you can't murder my son to get off from your sins. You understand what I'm saying? As much as I can muster up love for you, I'm not going to sacrifice Josh, Caleb, or Mary for that. Just not. Right?
there's no way. And I heard Brandon say, I've heard every pastor I know. I can't imagine. But God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ, who wasn't, by the way, a sinner. I don't know if you know this, but my three kids are sinners. <laughs> okay? I'll give you a list if you need it. Um, my three kids are sinners. They weren't perfect. They aren't perfect. Okay? And, and But Christ is a holy God. He's never done anything against God. And yet... God sent him to die for your sins and my sins. That's how I know the most important thing to God is lost people having some Savior hope and rescue in Jesus. That's the most important thing. There's a story in Luke chapter 15. Actually, I want to talk to you about the whole of Luke chapter 15 for just a minute because here's another evidence of that. In Luke 15... To watch how this chapter starts. Now, all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. So, just picture some busy intersection, street area, uh, little place where Jesus is in, the, in, in downtown uh, Galilee, and he's got all these people gathered around him, and they're not the good guys, okay? They're the thugs of the city, they're tax gatherers, they're sinners. Okay, they, they, they are not the upper echelon. They don't look right or sound right. They, they're rough around the edges. They swear, they curse, they drink. Okay, they're just a giant mess of people. All, the Bible says, are tax gatherers and sinners. That's the worst two categories in the New Testament to list people in. Okay? And then verse 2, and both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. So, so in the midst of all these tax gatherers and sinners, there are, there's another group across the street, probably with their arms folded, judging the, you know, tattooed, uh, you know, goth looking people over there in the other circle. They're judging all these people over here as tax gatherers and sinners. They're the religious guys and they're standing on the opposite street corner, but they're in, G- in the crowd with Jesus watching all this and they're judging. And they're saying, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. That's the only time in the New Testament where Jesus tells three stories in a row. And all three stories go like this. Um, he said, um, there was a man that once had a hundred sheep and he lost one. One got away. He found somebody to watch the 99 because he cares about them too. And he searched. He wandered all over the hillsides. He searched all night long. And when he found that sheep, That one lost sheep, he brought him back. He put him in his arms. He carried him home. He brought him back. And here's what he did. He called all his friends. He goes, hey, celebrate with me. That which was lost, the most valuable thing I have, which is my sheep. That which was lost, I have now found. Let's celebrate. He said there was this lady that was a widow lady. She had a collection of coins. Widow ladies kept these collections of coins. Most people believed it was her retirement money. And she lost a coin, and she couldn't find it anywhere. And she went into a panic mode, like we all do when we lose important stuff. And it says she she swept the whole house. She moved from, you can see her sitting the furniture out in the front yard, going, we're cleaning everything out. We're getting everything out of this house, and we're going to find. And, and when she found the coin, that which was lost, and very valuable when she found it, the Bible says she celebrated. She celebrated, went, oh, Gather all my friends together. I need to celebrate that which was lost. Tax gatherers and sinners are all listening to Jesus tell this story. And then he says, and then there was his father whose son 
wanted all his stuff from his inheritance. And so this young, the younger of two sons took all his stuff and went away into a foreign land and burned up all his dad's money. His dad's name and reputation were destroyed and the land fell into famine. And this, this young boy ended up in a, literally on a pig, in a pig farm, slopping pigs, shaming the name of his father. If you, as a Jewish person, that was a horrible occupation to have, by the way. He's shaming, he's doing everything he could possibly do wrong. And then finally the son comes to his senses and he says, actually says in the pig pen, he comes to his senses. I have a whole series called Pig Pen Theology where it's some of the best places to learn, by the way, when you're down and out and everything smells bad and looks bad and tastes bad. Time to, time to grow up and learn. And so here he is standing in his pig pen and he goes, you know, my father's servants on that big farm that I left, my servants live better than I live. And instead of eating this pig food that I'm hungering for, I should just go home. And here's what I should say. Father, I've sinned against you and against God. And and all I want to be is a servant. If I could just be a servant. You don't have to call me a son. I could just be a servant. So he set off to go to his dad. When he gets to his father's neighborhood, literally to the farm, his father sees him from a long ways off and runs off the porch runs out and grabs a hold of his son. And his son starts the speech. His father never lets him finish the speech. His son's going to say, hey, I just want to be a servant here. I've, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I just want to be a servant here. His father never lets him get that out. He says, hey, stop talking. I need some rings for him. Man, he needs some shoes. Gosh, he smells bad. Let's get some robes on this guy. Let's put some some party clothes on him and go in there and kill the fatted calf. I want the best meal we can possibly prepare because my son, which was lost and valuable, has come home. You get it? Jesus tells three stories in a row saying lost people are valuable. They're valuable. And if they're that valuable to him, they have to become valuable to us. That's the whole point of Luke chapter 15. You search for the lost and you celebrate when the lost are found. We have a routine we do at the camp and it sort of, I told this story at camp and, uh, and we had several kids at camp. I don't know. I've been there 14, 15 years now, but several children at camp got saved. Youth got saved one year and I said, Hey, we should throw them a party. When people get saved, we celebrate. We should throw them a party. And so they started this routine at camp now on Thursday night after we have our Thursday night chapel before we go to uh, campfire testimony time. We have a party in the fellowship hall or in the dining hall. We have a party with a birthday cake and everything and we celebrate the kids that get saved. And uh, little Arandon this year from our church, little Arandon got saved. Um, and I'll just tell you the backstory of that real quick. Leo and Angel and, and Teresa take gather him up from their neighborhood and bring him to church. And they, and he, he went to camp with us. Wasn't planning on going to camp, but he went to camp with us, and that was kind of an ordeal. And when, when we got there, the first day of camp, I asked the students to take a sticky note. We passed sticky notes around. I said, I want you to write the name of somebody that you like that you want to get saved. And you, you want, just like you did on your paper. You know what name Leo wrote? Arandon. And I have them put it on the wall. They put a sticky note on their, on the wall of the chapel. And there's this whole wall of sticky notes. And at the end of every chapel, really, throughout the day, I would just go in there and look at the wall and pray about it and pray about it and pray about it. And I would pray over those names. And on the second day of camp, Justin led a rand into Christ. So I went and found the note. Justin still has it in his Bible, I hope. But I went and found the note, the sticky note. 
I said, here's the guy we're praying for. Here's the guy that led him to Christ. Here's the note. You know how God works that out. Isn't it amazing? But lost people matter to God. They have to matter to us. And we have to get very seriously intense about what's the most important thing for us. The principle Jesus is trying to communicate to the religious leaders in Luke 15 is that lost people are important. The principle he's trying to communicate to Jonah in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah, lost people, very lost people are very important to me. And so this story goes out now. When the, when the, the Ninevites get a hold of all this, they have to repent. And we talked about the steps to, or the parts of repentance last week. They're not steps, but we talked about all the elements of repentance in Jonah's repentance in chapter 2. One of those is that genuine repentance... Genuine repentance uh, requires sacrifice. We have to turn and sacrifice something to God. We have to change and we have to sacrifice. That's exactly what the Ninevites did. Jonah's repentance was to sacrifice himself and go to Nineveh rather than do selfishly what he wanted to do, which was go to a resort town. And the people had to sacrifice. And it says in Jonah chapter 3 that they literally fasted. They put on a fast and they prayed to God. And they actually stopped eating and drinking to let God know they're serious. Now, I want to tell you, if you haven't tried fasting in your prayers and you have some big prayer needs or prayer concerns, I'd encourage you to do that. You have to be careful if you have dietary issues, if you, if you um, are taking medicines and that kind of stuff. You have to be careful. But the truth is, God takes fasting very, very seriously. And when people are, are willing to say, and there have been four or five times in my life where I've said to God, um, I remember one of these, I didn't think he was going to answer me, and I thought I was going to starve to death, but I remember saying to God, I'm not going to eat again until I get a clear vision and answer from you on this issue. And I started fasting. And uh, I, I don't know if you know this, but when you start fasting, people invite you out everywhere to your favorite restaurants. I mean, they just do. They're like, hey, you want to go to that great, I got a steak coupon, let's go get steak. I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. I'll just have water, thank you. You know, but I sat, I sat with a whole bunch of people having meals and just, and I, I had to eventually tell several people, even though you, tr- you try not to, you know, make a big deal out of it. Several people, hey, I'm really, I'm fasting for an answer. So, you know, in a few days, save that coupon. <laughs> in a few days, I'll be back. Um, but it went on for a very long time and, uh, God, but God finally gave me such a peace. I didn't know why it took so long, but it was so that when I actually stood before people that were my, Supervisors. These were pastors on a staff that I served with, and they're my supervisors. And they said, you're not hearing God's voice. I went, oh, yes, I am. <laughs> you have no idea how long I've prayed and fasted and begged God for a peace about this. So you're not hearing God. See, I'm not a conflict person. I'm a very, I submit to authority real easy. So when my authorities tell me I'm not hearing God's voice, my normal procedure that been, wow. Okay, whatever you say. I did not do that in this office. I said, I'm sorry, you're not hearing God's voice. And I didn't go, hey, you haven't fasted for 31 days, but I have. You know, you're not thinking clearly. I'm very tuned into God today. And it helped me understand, it helped me clearly understand that God favors people who will take extra measures to sacrifice for Him. And He will help you. So there may be things in your life you need answers to and things you're praying about. And uh, sometimes you need to raise the level of intensity. God takes that sacrifice very seriously. Now the last thing I want us to hear today is that God's grace is both for the saved and the unsaved. We tend to use the word grace all the time. And a lot of times we put it in a spiritualized category 
that says we're saved by grace. That's the truth. For God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10 says, uh, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Okay, so you are saved by grace. But you're also, the Bible says in Titus and Timothy, you're sanctified. That's to be made holy like God by grace. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1, he says, um, Philippians 1 and verse 6, he says, He who began the good journey, he who began, he will finish it. He's going to finish the work, the good work that he's done in me. He who began a good work in me will complete it. I don't have to, I'm not doing the work. I can't even do the work of sanctifying myself. You think you could make yourself holy if you tried? I mean, think about how holy God is, really. Get a picture of how pure and righteous, never having sinned. He's never had an evil thought in his whole life. God's never had an evil thought in all of existence. There's never been an evil thought in God's mind. And you think you can make yourself holy? Just give yourself another 10 years. You'll be holy. I don't care how hard you scrub and clean and wash your brain and whatever you want to do. You know, maybe electroshock. I don't know. Whatever you think you need to do to be holy. You think you could ever get there? You're never going to get there. That's why he who began the good work in you is going to make that happen. He's the purifying process. And we take the water, the Bible says in Titus, we take the water, the word, and we wash it through our system. And it washes and cleanses us. So we, we read the word and it helps purify us. But the ultimate purification is, was at the cross where all your sins were forgiven. All your sins were forgiven. So there's this beautiful deal that you can just say, you know, grace is both for Jonah and for Nineveh. In this chapter, Jonah got a lot of grace. You know what his grace is? He gets to serve again. He was a bad servant, disobedient to God. God said, nope, come on. Won't you go back? Go tell him. So he got a second chance to serve. Some of you feel like you fail God when you, when you sin and you struggle. You go, no, I just shouldn't be serving. I just, you know, God, I'm such a mess. I shouldn't be doing anything. And God goes, no, 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 no. I will purify you. You keep working on those things and you confess your sins. We talked about that in detail last week. You confess your sins and I will keep you serving me. You can serve after you failed. Almost every character in the Bible of any significance, was a royal failure. The Apostle Paul calls himself chief of all sinners, and he actually says a couple different times, he talks about that which I wish I wouldn't do, I do. That which I shouldn't do, I do. And I wish these are things I wish I could do or should do for God. I don't do those things. That sounds familiar. It's Romans chapter 7, by the way. Paul struggled to be what he was supposed to be, but God still used him. Thirteen books in your New Testament. Thirteen times Paul's mind was so right with God. He was so in tune with God that God said, I can, I can literally put my words in your heart and mind and they'll come out on a pen and piece of paper with you. That's powerful. And Paul says, I'm the chief of all sinners. So you don't have to give up on yourself just because you failed. Jonah didn't have to give up on himself because grace works for everybody. God wants to give you another chance to serve and be all you're supposed to be for Him. And as Christians growing in your understanding of the Word, you know how far you can stray from God and how weak you can be. All of us do. But God, God ultimately wants you to be His servant. He wants you to do His will. Here's what He really wants, though. I want you to think about this one because this is going to be right to the point. God wants you to stop not telling people about Him. Okay, I said that sentence weird on purpose, so you'd have to think about it. God wants you to stop not telling people. You know what Jonah did in chapter 1? He did not tell anybody about God. 
He said, I'm going to, I'm going on vacation. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going on vacation. I am not going to take this whole, you know, go to Nineveh thing serious. And God wants all of us as Christians to stop doing that. And he wants us to start telling people about him. It's the most important thing on the planet. It's the most important thing on the planet to tell people about him. God wants you to do his will, to tell his story, to tell the, the truth about grace and his love. He wants him to tell your story. We have a little program, a little process here. I could show you, it takes about 15 minutes for you to do this. I could show you in 15 minutes how to tell your story. We call it elevator testimony. Okay, where you can just tell your story in three minutes, two minutes or less if you're really good. If you're Cody, it's got to be a big building. So if you're Larry, it's got to be eight, 18 stories and then you got to ride back halfway down with them. So, <laughs> yeah. But the truth is you should be able to tell your story of what God's done for you in just a couple of minutes. And God wants you to tell your story. Don't keep the grace that saved you from your sins and sends you into heaven. Don't keep that grace a secret anymore. That's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Go tell them they're in sin and there's a different way to live. And immediately they believed God, put on a fast and said, we're changing everything. I know the youth that heard me at camp want me to say this. So it actually says they, they covered everybody, including the farm animals, in sackcloth and ash. And I am dying to see the video of this. When we get to heaven, I hope God tapes a whole bunch of his stuff. I can't wait to see a bunch of little chickens running around a chicken farm covered in sackcloth, okay? Little heads covered, <laughs> banging into each other and stuff. I mean, the camels, the donkeys, and all that. The sheep are all covered up. You know, you can't see a thing. I can't wait to see all that. Um, but the truth is they were serious. And by the way, if you live in an ag- agrarian society like that and you, hit, you, you depend on your farm to save your life and you say, hey, nobody's eating or drinking, including the cows, including the sheep, you're, you're sentencing yourself to death. That's the change that went through Nineveh. They went, hey, we're serious. We're so serious, God. Nobody's going to eat. Nobody's going to drink. We're covering everything in sackcloth. We're sprinkling ashes on them. Because we know we're just as good as dead. If you're saying we're judged, we know. And it caused God's heart to change and grace to just pour out on Nineveh. So, grace for Nineveh was that God didn't destroy them. This is the passage in the New Testament and the Old Testament that gives me hope for a very rapidly declining America. And I just want you to understand a couple things. The first ever terrorist that anybody ever knew about comes out of a place called Assyria. You know this name, Assyria? It's in the Bible. The first ever real terrorist organization, group of people that would gather together, storm out into the, the foreign lands. they just go to their neighboring countries and terrorize people for no good reason. Sometimes they would take their stuff, sometimes they wouldn't. They would just kill and murder the people and then go back home. Came out of a place called Assyria. Okay? Assyria is a nation that today is called, anybody? Iraq. That's where Iraq comes from. And Nineveh is the center of that and the capital of it. When God sent Jonah to Nineveh, he's sending them into the middle of the Assyrians who had already become terrorists, by the way. They were already this nation that used to go out and just murder people. That's why Jonah didn't want to go. Now here's, here's an amazing amount of theology about grace. In Jonah chapter 1... And three, God is determined to get the message of hope to the Assyrians. 
some of the worst people on the planet. To this day, they are some of the worst people on this planet. That's where ISIS comes from. That's where this whole war that we're facing, they call it the war on terrorism, but it's really the war against extreme Islamic and ISIS and all that. And there's this massive war taking place. It all comes right out of here in Nineveh. And God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh and warn them my words. You know why? Because God loves terrorists. Isn't that crazy? God loves those people. He wants their lives to change. He doesn't want them to go to hell. He wants their lives to change. Now, once again, you have a name on the top of your paper. Hopefully not a terrorist. <laughs> okay. Most of you probably don't know any terrorists. You have a name on top of your paper. God loves that person so much. If God would love Nineveh, he loves that person. And see, I believe America, has we, we have forsaken God in so many ways. There was a long time in my growing up years where we just were apathetic as a nation towards God. We just didn't want to let him be the influence in America's life. And we kept pushing him to the back. It's why prayers came out of the schools and, you know, we started taking the Ten Commandments out of everything and sort of just backing away from God, backing away from God. But it was very apathetic during my generation. This current generation is rapidly and aggressively trying to eliminate God and has turned dramatically as a nation. We've turned dramatically to idol worship. Okay, We worship the almighty dollar. We worship wealth and prosperity. We worship fame like crazy. It's the only reason all these big TV shows can be popular is because we think it's awesome, you know, to worship people that are famous. And, and so all of this has, we've turned our nation into a nation of pure idolatry. Every time Israel, every time Israel got apathetic towards God, he sent little warnings to them. He warned them and warned them and warned them. He sent prophets to warn them. Then eventually they would turn to idolatry. When, when, when Israel turned to idolatry, God always sent a nation to attack them, to warn them. And there were usually one or two good warnings before there was an annihilation of Israel. Literally, literally Israel was wiped out. By the way, you know who wiped Israel off the map at the end of the Old Testament? The Assyrians. The Assyrians. The same group that's repentant right here. Can you imagine? I keep picturing in my head. I know it's Old Testament. I keep picturing in my head Jonah saying, hey, we need to build some churches, temples back then. We need to build some tabernacles to God. Y'all are worshiping God now? Let's get serious about this. Let's, let's seriously fall in love with the creator of all. And let me teach you about him. Can you imagine if Nineveh, at the heart of the Assyrians, if Nineveh had truly turned to God in that day, how different life would have been. But when you get to chapter 4, Jonah's not interested in Nineveh. He still doesn't have a heart of God. And he pouts when they repent. And there is no follow-up with them. And ultimately, the Assyrians return to Israel as a nation that literally conquers Israel. First they come in and they just wipe them out. Tear down their walls, tear down the outer walls and the temple and everything and desolate them. But then later they come back and just completely almost eliminate Israel off the map. Same group of people. But God loves them. It's amazing to me. God sent a message to them to warn them because He loves them. Even though He knew they would eventually attack His people. Because His grace covers all of that ground. 
So there is hope for America. Give me a bonus note here as we close. The people in Jonah chapter 3 repented before the government repented. It actually says in Jonah 3, the people believed and, and proclaimed a fast. And then later it says, the king and his nobles made a decree and said, hey, you know what we ought to do? We ought to believe and proclaim a fast. Great idea, king. Wish we'd have thought of that. We're already ahead of you. But it gives me hope that in America, our government is messed up, honestly, messed up. Our government is so messed up, they're not even trying to follow God's principles anymore. It's not even on the map to follow God's principles anymore. And yet, the hope is not in our government. Because I can watch all that news and just get panicked. I mean, you get depressed. You watch enough of that stuff, it's just depressing. Hope isn't in that. It's in God doing a work in a people. You know where revival starts? One person. Just one person gets revived. Revives his friends. His friends revive their friends. They all repent together. That's what happened in Nineveh. All the friends in the neighborhood got together and said, man, we better repent. Jonah said overthrown. He said the wrath of God is going to come and overthrow us. We better repent. Yeah, let's repent. And the friends got together with each other and told what God's wrath and God's grace could be. And they said, please, God, maybe somehow you just change your mind about all this. Revival starts with you. It's contagious, by the way. Repentance and revival is contagious. We're planning on eventually in the fall, maybe if, if our plans work out and God helps us, uh, we're going to try to have some sort of special meetings uh, one weekend. That would be what some people might call an old-fashioned revival. Um, but you know what? Revival doesn't happen through a meeting. It happens in a heart. And it happens as one person is willing to say, I will change whatever I need to change to be more like you. Does that make sense? All right, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Our praise team is going to come back up.